would, uh, open up your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to continue the sermon that I started last week and kind of cut right in half. Um, uh, and we should be able to finish a lot of it up uh, today, and hopefully um, next week we'll be done with uh, this group of sermons. Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 1, if you would read along with me, or, or chapter 2, verse 1, if you would read along with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray, Lord, as a church, we recognize that the gospel is the answer, Lord. The gospel is the solution, Lord. The good news of Jesus Christ, Lord, is what we rest our hope in. But I pray that that's not just true in, in our theology, Lord, but that's true in our actions and our boldness and our confidence, Lord, as we interact with a society that desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we look through this passage and understand our salvation, Lord. And I pray that, that going through this passage, Lord, we find humility, Lord, as we see the truths that are found in the good news, Lord. Be with us right now in your son's name. Amen. Last week I had uh, two goals with the sermon um, that I started uh, last week and then we can continue this week. The first goal was just to simply show that racism is a sin. The Bible is clear on this. Racism is a horrible evil. And because we live in a fallen world, it's a reality that should break our hearts when we see it. And, you know, we should call it what it is when we see it, an evil, a sin. That was my first goal last week. My second goal was to show that there's really two ways people are addressing racism right now in our society. There's two worldviews that at the core are at odds with each other. The first worldview is a biblical worldview. It's a biblical way of looking at racism. And there is a secular way of looking at racism. And for a number of reasons, I am going to call this secular way from here and on into the future the religion of intersectionality. This religion of intersectionality is secular, meaning rejecting God. It's postmodern, meaning rejecting overarching truth. And it's Marxist. It's bent on destruction and revolution. 
the religion of intersectionality is fundamentally at odds with biblical Christianity, not just because it's secular, in other words, in other words rejecting God, but also because it's postmodern, rejecting overarching truth, and it's why I believe that this will lead to greater racism in the future. Because there's no transcendent truth in this worldview that unite us as humans. But the Bible, on the other hand, anchors all of its morality on ontological, unchanging, transcendent truth. And this truth transcends our differences. It transcends even our racial differences. So today I want to look at Ephesians, really to see and to show that the gospel, which is good news, undermines the idea of racism. The gospel is the solution. And in doing this, I want to start by reminding us the context. We went over this last week, but the context of Ephesians is so important right now. Specifically, the hostility there was in the time that this letter was written between the Jews and the Greek. Greeks. We went over the long history of conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, a, a long history of hatred. But just think about this. Jews celebrate to this day Hanukkah, which points back to a historical event where Jews fought against Greeks who were oppressing them, trying to Hellenize them, or trying to force Greek values and culture on them. And the Jews fought back and won some freedom. Jews to this day still celebrate this victory 2,000 years later. A long history of conflict. And again, we went over that a little bit last week, but it wasn't just the history of conflict that separated the Jews and the Greeks. The Jewish culture and the Greek culture were, were just fundamentally different for at least three major ways. First, religious differences separated these two cultures. The Jews were monotheistic, meaning they believed in one, the one true God of Yahweh. The Greek culture was polytheistic and paganistic, meaning they worshipped thousands of gods, and they worshipped them in pagan, ugly ways. Their second difference is a social difference. The Jewish law acted like a dividing wall between uh, these cultures. Ceremonies, circumcision, dietary restrictions, rules on cleansiness, uh, holy days, and so on. The Old Testament law, it, it was designed to set the Jewish nation apart from the other nations. The Greeks thought the Jews were just weird and strange. Third is ethnic differences. As I've been saying for a while now, all men come from Adam, therefore there really is only one race, and that is the human race. But there are real ethnic differences, especially between Jews and Gentile nations history of scripture you have Jacob and Esau that became nations you have Isaac and Ishmael who became nations and you have Abraham and his offspring and all the other nations so there were real dividing issues between the Jews and the Greeks in fact John Piper in his book on racism says the divide, the divide between Jews and Greeks was as big if not bigger than any divide that we face today among Anglo, African, Latino Asian or Native American. Huge cultural gap. Right? That's the historical context of, of what this great letter to the Ephesians was written in. I also want to remind you of the outline, and we've spent a lot of time on this, so we'll go through it quickly. Of course, Ephesians 1 through 3 is the theology, the doctrine. 
foundational truth which anchor the commands that we find in Ephesians 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is an introduction, a typical Pauline introduction. Verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1 is that amazing doxology, just praising God for his salvation. Verses 15 through 23 is Paul's prayer for the church. He writes out the church, or prayer for the church. Chapter 1 really is just kind of the introduction to the letter. It's not until you get to chapter 2, verse 1, what we just read, that you start to get into the heart of the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the gospel. Description of our salvation. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is, is all about Jews and Greeks or Gentiles becoming one body. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 is about the mystery of the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs with Jews. And then the end of chapter 3 is another prayer. But if you look again at the heart of this amazing letter, this letter that's loved by so many Christians, heart of this letter is really about two groups, Jews and Greeks, historically who hated each other, now are one. Now are one body. Now are one temple, one family. And that's the ontological truth. It's not a command. The commands on how to live as one comes in chapters 4 through 6. They are one, those that have put their faith in Christ. But the foundation to this unity, to this oneness, the gospel. It's how Paul starts the heart of this letter, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. It, it's, this, it's this passage that most Christians love. It's memorized by so many, and so many point to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Again, I've been saying, I think our church probably has it memorized by now. It's from being read so much. Yet very few people know why Paul wrote it. He wrote it to lay down the foundation to racial unity. Now, with that in mind, I want to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So let's look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul starts, right, a Jew writing to a church that was mostly Greeks. He starts and says this, and you. And you, church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This fits, coming from a Jew, right, speaking to Greeks who at one time were utter pagans before salvation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Again, we said this last week, the course of this world is world system or world standards. For us, we said in our social, uh, social society, in our, our time period, that's a secular society, rejecting God and postmodern rejecting truth. But, but for the Greeks who Paul was writing to, it was polytheistic, many gods, idol-worshipping, and paganistic, complete moral depravity, licentious living in worship of these pagan gods. Following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince we said last week is Satan, the spirit, the spirit of that age in the Greek culture was a pagan spirit. And the city of Ephesus was... One of the worst cities at this, they're, they're utterly pagan. Worshipped many false demonic gods. Sexually perverse. In fact, the city boasts of a massive temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana, who was a sex goddess. 
temple was full of temple prostitutes. That's just how you worshipped this goddess. Ephesus was morally corrupt in a morally corrupt Greek culture. And Paul starts the heart of this letter by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Right? Which makes sense. Coming from a Jew. Again, who outwardly lived a moral life. Right? Jews. Especially Paul. If there was anyone, listen, if there was anyone ever that lived a morally outstanding life outwardly, it was Paul. In fact, Paul writes in Philippians 3, 4, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, living morally, being a good person, I have more, what Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lived a moral life outwardly. So it makes sense when he writes to this Greek church, and you, you Greeks, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. For the church to hear this, it would have made sense, but then Paul does something shocking. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. Look what Paul does. Verse 1, and you were dead. Verse 2, in which you once walked. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Paul includes himself. Why? And why does this matter? Why do these personal pronouns matter so much? Well, remember the context, this tension between Jews and Greeks, right? Paul is telling this Greek Greek church, you were, you were, you were. And then verse 3, he says, and we all were. Both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, we all were sinners. We all were spiritually dead. We all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all by nature children of wrath. That's genitive of of destiny. In other words, that's, that's children destined for God's wrath, children destined for hell like the rest of mankind. This is an ontological, ultimate reality, transcendent truth for all men. It doesn't matter what culture or race you come from. This truth transcends culture and race. It's a part of the gospel message. We are all born with a sin nature. We are all born spiritually dead. And this truth transcends race. It's an ultimate reality. Even Paul, a Jew, a a Pharisee, a rule follower, before salvation was dead. And listen, this is important. Just as dead as the pagan Greeks were before salvation. You just think about that analogy for a second. Physical deadness. If someone is dead physically, 
he's dead. <laughs> There's not levels of deadness. Sorry, Princess Bride, that's not true. You can't be more dead than someone else physically. When you're physically dead, you're dead. The Greeks weren't more dead spiritually than the Jews. They were all spiritually dead. We all were spiritually dead. Turn with me, in fact, to Romans 3, verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9. Paul asks a question, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And I would add Anglo, African, Latino, Asian, Native American, so on. All are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. None, no, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throats, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and mis- misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is man before salvation. This is us before salvation. The Jewish nation had disdain for Gentiles, especially Greeks. They looked down upon Greeks. We saw this last week. They didn't even associate with them. They wouldn't even eat with them at the same table because they're unclean. The Jews thought the Greeks were morally inferior than them. Listen, the gospel completely destroys that notion. It completely destroys that notion. Paul writes, we all, right, all peoples, we all were under, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The gospel completely levels the playing field. And why is that important? Listen, you look down on another culture, any culture, any race, because you think they are morally corrupt, then you don't understand the gospel. I'm not saying you're not saved, you just don't understand the depths of your salvation. We all start from the same place. Spiritually dead. In fact, David writes in Psalms 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And you might be thinking, and I think this is a natural reaction to this teaching, well, I wasn't that bad of a person before I was saved. Listen, praise God. The, the only reason you weren't a criminal before salvation was because of God's common grace. God restrained your evil heart, in other words, your dead, spiritually dead heart, from being as evil as it could be or wanted to be. 
God does this in four ways. Your conscience, with the law written on your heart. He does this with the family. It's a, a statistic I saw this week that just kind of blew me away. 85% of prisoners come, a, come from a fatherless home. God restrains our evilness through the government. We talked about this. Just the fear of punishment. And God restrains the evil of our heart through the church. Listen, if you grew up in a family, especially if you had a mom and dad that loved you, if you grew up in the church, maybe you grew up in a single-parent single, single parent family, but that single parent, bless their heart, brought you to church, and you grew up in the church, and were taught biblical values before salvation, that's God's common grace. And even if you weren't and you didn't become a criminal, that's still God's common grace. Restraining the evil that's within our hearts. So praise God. Yet at the same time, you were all spiritually dead. You were all spiritually dead. And that's Paul's point. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. It says this in verse 3, Among whom we all, that's all mankind, that's every culture, that's every race, that's every individual, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, utterly hopeless, destined for hell verse 4 but God I just hope like we just have this memorized That's, verse 4 is amazing right? but God in other words God acted God intervened in our spiritually dead lives but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead again that's net cross that's spiritually dead corpse in other words even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus there's three, three main verbs in this portion of scripture here the first verb is this God made us alive he brought spiritual life to our dead souls. In other words, your salvation was a miracle by His grace as a gift. By grace you have been saved. The second verb is that God, verse 6, raised us up with Him. Just as He raised Christ from the dead, He raised us from our spiritually dead state. Third verb, God seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All three verbs, God is the one acting. By grace you have been saved. It's God's work. It's God's grace. And why did he do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He saved us so that we would be trophies of his grace and mercy for eternity. So that his grace and mercy would be put on display for eternity, verse 7, in the coming ages. I hope this is humbling. 
I think it's why I love this passage of Scripture so much. It just humbles me. Even our own salvation is not primarily about us. It's about Him. It's about God's grace being put on display for eternity. Salvation is God's work, and it's for God's glory. That's humbling. I mean, think about it. It took a miracle to save us. It took a miracle to, to, to raise you from the dead, to bring life to your dead soul, to, to rebirth you and me. And God did all of this, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. It's all to the praise of God's glorious grace, Ephesians 1, 6. That God will be worshipped for eternity because he took spiritually dead people and made them alive and brought grace to them and salvation to them and adopted them into his family. Therefore, there's no room for pride. Before salvation, we were spiritually dead. At salvation, it was God's work for God's glory. And just in case pride tries to creep in, Paul adds verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. In other words, this whole thing, this whole salvation is all by God's grace. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no boasting in salvation. There's no boasting in Christianity unless we are boasting in God and Christ and what he has done for us. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was grace before salvation, it was grace at salvation, and it's grace that keeps us saved. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I just believe Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is the most humbling passage in all of Scripture. And I also believe it's this humility that is foundational to racial unity. The answer is the gospel. The answer that our society and culture needs so desperately is the gospel. It needs bold Christians to go out and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Right? This is our part. 1 through 3, right? This is what we did. Verse, verse 1, and you, this is us, right? And you were dead. That's, that's what we did. And you were dead. Verse 2, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's us. And you, you lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Verses 1 is and you, verses 4 is but God. But God, verses 4 through 10 is God's work. Listen, we didn't save ourselves, God did. We didn't bring life to ourselves. God brought life. Therefore, we Christians should be humble. Because we owe everything to his glorious grace. So I want you to grasp this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, there's not one command in there. This is just pure truth. 
This is foundational truth. This is transcendent truth that transcends all of our differences. Transcends culture and race. It's why we're called as the church to take this good news. It's news. We're, we're called to take it to the nations, to every people group. Because it transcends all of our differences. It's a transcendent truth. Now I want to look at the command. Here, let's look at the application. Turn to Ephesians 4.1. Here's the therefore, right? The truth is what we just went over, right? No command in that truth. Therefore, Paul's going to say, live a certain way. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, what's this calling? Well, the calling is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what we just went over. Walk worthy of it. It's Paul's command. How do you do that? Verse 2, with all humility. Walk humbly. Be humble. Be humble towards people that are different. Have different upbringings. Different races. It doesn't mean not to speak truth or stand on truth. But be humble. Humbly stand on truth. And when you do stand on truth, when you do preach truth or proclaim truth, do it with gentleness. Right, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Be gentle. Are you gentle? Are we gentle as a church with, when we talk to people online or at work or, or, or family members? When we talk to people about world events, are we gentle? Again, it doesn't mean we don't proclaim truth. We need to proclaim truth. That's our, that's our calling. We do it gently, with patience. Are we patient with one another? You know why we should be patient? We all came from the same exact place. Spiritual deadness. I don't care what, what culture you were brought up in, what part of uh, America you were brought up in. We all came from the same exact place. Spiritual deadness. We need to be patient with each other. And listen, our hearts should break for those that are still spiritually dead. They're not our enemies. Right? They're deceived by the enemy. They're our mission field. They need to hear the good news of Jesus. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Are you loving? Bearing with one another, I meaning, are you long-suffering? Not quick-tempered. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should be eager to maintain within the church especially unity and peace, seeking unity and peace. That's the command. That's the application. Let me just end with this. When the truth of the gospel, again, it's good news, it's news, it's truth-telling. When the truth of the gospel transcends our differences as a church. Listen, that glorifies God. Because the glory of God becomes bigger than our differences. It overshadows all of our differences. And it points to a glorious God. But unity will only happen if we as a church are, are humble. 
gentle, patient, long-suffering, and loving. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray for the church right now, the church at large, the universal church, Lord, all those that are Christians right now, I pray that we run to your your word, Lord, that we rest in your gospel and that we are not ashamed of saying that, that it is the solution. God, I, I just see the devil attacking the church right now with false ideologies that, that lead away from a biblical worldview, lead away from the gospel. God, protect the church from these schemes of the devil, Lord. Help us to be bold, to call evil what it is. When we see racism or evil, we, we boldly say what it is, Lord. But, but even more than that, that we, we proclaim the gospel clearly, Lord. And we're not ashamed of it. Because it is the only thing that will bring unity between people that hate each other. Help us to not only proclaim the gospel, help us as a church to live the gospel, Lord. To be humble, to be patient, to be long-suffering, to be loving, to be truth-telling, too. God, be with our church, Lord. I pray that that Country Oaks and all the churches in Tehachapi, Lord, are, are a light, Lord, a light to the culture around us. That, that people see us and, and see something different than what's going on in society. I pray that's true for us in your son's name.